For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. The title of our sermon this morning, The Word of Faith. This is part one, Romans chapter 10, verses 5 through 13. Brothers and sisters, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is the only means through which guilty sinners have ever been saved. It is the only means through which salvation comes, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has made the case that for every fallen, sinful son or daughter of Adam, the only means whereby we must be saved is the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. His work alone. We are ourselves unrighteous. And righteousness is what we need in order to stand before God justified in his sight. The righteousness that we need is his righteousness, not our own. And it's his righteousness that God freely offers through the gospel. It is a gift of his grace. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ then, and you shall be saved. That message of the gospel, think with me, that message of the gospel is rooted and grounded in the Old Testament scriptures. That's not a New Testament phenomenon. That is something that God has prophesied from the very beginning. It's rooted in the Old Testament. Verse 1 of this letter, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Where was the gospel first, first preached? In the Old Testament, the Old Testament Scriptures through his prophets. So in our text today, with his concern set upon unbelieving and apostate Israel, his heart's desire, his prayer for them, being their salvation, that's verse 1, Paul now turns to the text acknowledged by the Jews to be ultimately authoritative. He turns, as it were, to their text. He turns to the scriptures of the Old Testament. It was in the Old Testament, the scriptures of the Old Testament, that God promised a seed to crush the head of the serpent. The Old Testament scriptures proclaimed the gospel to Abraham beforehand saying, in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And it was in that promised seed proclaimed in the text of the Old Testament scriptures that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him or imputed to him as righteousness. It was through the means of his faith that Abraham received from God a righteousness that fully satisfied the demands of his holy law. As he said to the prophet Isaiah, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious stone, a cornerstone, a sure foundation. However, with all of that Old Testament witness, that Old Testament testimony to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, rather than building their faith and their hope and their assurance upon that foundation which was laid, the Jews, as many in our, as a, as many in our own day, the Jews stumbled over it. As it is written in the text of the Old Testament, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. The Jews didn't understand their Old Testament scriptures. The Jews didn't understand, didn't apprehend 
They willfully rejected the revelation of God contained in the Old Testament. Now, Paul has been explaining the Old Testament as it is meant to be understood. Paul is not giving a reinterpretation of the Old Testament. He's not taking quotes out of context and saying this is what they should mean or this is what I think they mean. Paul is giving us, explaining to us, the Old Testament as the Old Testament is meant to be understood. We need to learn that from the Apostle Paul. Paul has said the law was added because of transgression. The law served to confine all men under sin. The whole world may become guilty before God. The law was intended to point us to our need, not of righteousness within ourselves or a righteousness to be found within our own obedience to the law, but the law was intended to point us to our need for Jesus Christ. Obedience to the law was never meant to be the means through which anyone would attain to a justifying righteousness before God. It's not what the law was meant to do. Yet that's exactly what many of the Jews had intended to do through the law. The Jews willfully refused to submit themselves to that righteousness which is from God through faith. And instead, they zealously, diligently sought their own righteousness through their own personal obedience to the law. And they refused to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the telos, the termination of that principle. He is the termination of that hopeless endeavor. For those who place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, he is the end of that futile pursuit by which men attempt to attain a justifying righteousness through their own obedience to the law of God. That firm foundation, that tried stone upon which our faith and our hope is to be built, cannot be our own obedience to the law. That firm foundation may only be Jesus Christ, our righteousness. He is our righteousness. If you've placed your faith in him, he is the sum total of your justifying righteousness before God. And it is only upon his righteousness imputed to us through faith that we may hear a verdict of just in the courtroom of heaven. That soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, God says, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Praise God. In consideration of that then, with his concern now primarily set upon unbelieving and apostate Israel, it's that contrast, if you will, between these two principles, a principle of law and a principle of faith. It's that contrast that Paul now intends to explain from the Old Testament in the text under our consideration this morning. The Jews needed to understand that contrast, that contrast. And the Jews needed to understand that contrast as revealed in the Old Testament scriptures. And brothers and sisters, we need to understand that contrast as revealed in the Old Testament scriptures. That contrast involves two principles. Paul might refer to the first as a principle of law. In verse 5, he speaks about that righteousness which is of the law, right? And then Paul might refer to that second principle as a principle of faith. In verse 6, he speaks of the righteousness of faith, or that righteousness which comes from God through the means or through the instrumentality, if you will, of our faith. These two principles are in opposition to one another. That's why they're set in contrast. These two principles are mutually exclusive. The first principle is declared by Moses, 
verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live, with, live by them. That first principle is then set in contrast with the second. But, verse 6, the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. That righteousness revealed in the gospel, in other words, speaks in this way. Two principles set in contrast. In both cases, Paul is referring to that contrast from the testimony of Old Testament texts, from the testimony of the Old Testament scriptures, those scriptures that the Jews held to be authoritative. In other words, think with me now, set in contrast within the text of the Old Testament, you hear the voice of the law and you hear the voice of the gospel. It's not that the law is relegated, if you will, to the confines of the Old Testament and the gospel to the new. Within the text of the Old Testament scriptures, you hear the voice of the law and you hear the voice of the gospel. One principle confining all men under sin, leading to their inevitable judgment. The other principle revealing, if you will, the grace and mercy and compassion of God in providing, in God providing a righteousness of his own through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ so that men might be saved. John Cahoon said this, Every passage of sacred scripture is either law or gospel, capable of being referred either to the one or to the other. Only one of those principles provides a justifying or saving righteousness. Only one. Now, the contrast itself is provided in support of Paul's assertion from Romans chapter 10, verse 4, that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In other words, Christ is not the end of the law. Christ is the end of the law to righteousness or the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who puts their faith and trust in him. Salvation is through faith in Christ for his righteousness and not a dependence upon our own or our own obedience to God's law. So we come to that assertion then. The assertion of Romans chapter 10, verse 4, we come to that assertion based on the testimony of the Old Testament texts. And we hear first from Moses regarding the testimony of the law, verse 5. For Moses writes about that righteousness, which is of the law, the man who does those things shall live by them. Now that testimony from the Old Testament comes to us from Leviticus chapter 18. Turn there with me. Leviticus chapter 18. The text in which many an annual reading plan has died. <laughs> I encourage you not to allow that to be the case. That is, this is a wonderful book in Scripture. Leviticus chapter 18. The first 16 chapters of, Levit of Leviticus. Tongue-tied this morning. The first 16 chapters address the corporate worship of the people of God the corporate worship of the people of God. Chapter 17 begins a new section of the book in which God now addresses their individual conduct, okay? The conduct that the Lord is particularly concerned with in this particular text is sexual immorality. Seven times the Israelites are told to abstain from that sexual immorality that characterized the Egyptians or that sexual immorality that characterized the Canaanites that lived there before them. And the reason that the Lord gives for their obedience is this, because I am Yahweh. 
The Lord commands their obedience. He commands them to be different than those nations that existed there before them and not to sin in those ways because I am Yahweh. I am the God of the covenant. I am the Lord your God. Do not sin like them. Do you see? There's a covenant reason for God's command here. To be sexually immoral is to conduct yourself like a pagan. To be sexually immoral is to conduct yourself like a pagan. Doesn't Paul say, learn how to possess your own vessel, right? Learn how to possess your own vessel. Do not possess your own vessel in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who what? Who do not know God. To sin in that way, and to sin in other ways too, but to sin in this way, the particular concern of this text, to sin in that way is to sin like a pagan. We find out later that sexual immorality was the very reason why the Canaanites were vomited out of the land. That was the reason that God gave, okay? Look with me at verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, I am Yahweh. I am the covenant-keeping God. I am the God of the covenant. According to the doings of the land of Egypt, where you dwelt, you shall not do. And according to the doings of the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you, you shall not do, nor shall you walk in their ordinances. You, on the other hand, shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them. I am Yahweh. You shall therefore, you shall therefore, I am Yahweh, therefore keep my statutes and keep my judgments. And here it is, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am Yahweh. The Lord then gives multiple commands related to sinful and immoral sexual conduct. So in this text then, in that context... The people of God are charged to obey his law. The people of God are commanded to obey, right? Because you are in covenant with me, God says, because I am the Lord your God, because I am the God of the covenant, you shall observe my judgments. You shall keep my ordinances. You shall obey my commands to walk in them. You shall keep my statutes and keep my judgments. Then the Lord adds this very interesting consequence of obedience at the end of verse 5. Regarding those commands of God, regarding the statutes and judgments, if a man does them, he shall live by them. Right? If a man does them, he shall live. God promises life upon obeying his commands. Now, it's this statement that Paul pulls from Leviticus chapter 18. He pulls this statement to contrast law and gospel In Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 5, the man who does these things shall live by them. We have to understand what that is communicating to us, okay? Although the context of Paul's quote comes from a text here addressing sexual immorality in particular, I want you to see the statement refers to universal or complete obedience to all the statutes and judgments of God. They're referring here to complete and perfect obedience to the law of God. Perfectly and completely answering the demands of God's law. 
Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 29, refers to the same statement, the very same statement, speaking of complete obedience to God's law. The man who does these things shall live by them. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 21, refers to the very same statement, speaking of perfect universal obedience to God's law. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew text, refers to the very same statement, speaking of perfect universal obedience to God's law, and twice adds the word all to their translation. You shall keep all my ordinances and keep all my judgments and do them. Okay? Paul himself refers to this statement again in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. Listen to Paul. Cursed is everyone who does not continue in some of the things that are written in the law. <laughs> no. Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by his faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but in contrast, contrasting law and gospel, Paul says, the man who does them shall live by them. We're going to talk about what that means more in a moment. The basis the basis upon which this perfect, complete, universal obedience is compelled is the covenant relationship that Israel has to God. The basis of that command is the covenant relationship that Israel has to God. I am Yahweh, God says. Now, it's in this context then, a context that Paul has derived from the Old Testament text, it's in this context that we're introduced to a principle. The principle is this. The man who does these things shall live by them. To borrow language possibly from the covenant of works. Do these things and you will live. Do not do these things and you will die. Do you see? Life is promised to those who render perfect and complete obedience to the law of God. I think with me about that statement. Some think that that promise of life is referring to physical, temporal life. Your life will not be cut short by an early death if you obey God's law. Some people think of that promise as referring to physical or temporal blessings under the covenant. Some think of that promise as referring to eternal life. But I want us to see something from the context of this text in Leviticus 18. What is the context of this statement? The context of our statement in Leviticus 18 is God's covenant with Israel. Now think, the one who sins is cut off from his covenant relationship to God. He's cut off from his, from his people. The one who obeys maintains that right standing with God in the covenant. He maintains a right relationship to God. He is in right standing with the God of the covenant. And so Robert Martin, in one case, uh, says that the life that is promised through obedience to the law is what we would call covenant life, if you will. could be referred to in that way. It's covenant life. Right standing with God is covenant life. In right standing with God, he is just, so to speak, in the eyes of God. And all of the blessings of God that are associated with the covenant flow to him through that obedience. So it's not just life. It's not just eternal life. It's not just physical temporal life or physical temporal blessings. It's all of the blessings. It's all that pertains to him as a result, if you will, of his right standing, of his justification, you could say, in the sight of God. It's all of the covenant promises, all of the covenant blessings, all that God intends through the covenant. 
And we see it more clearly in verse 24 then. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 24. The Lord gives multiple commands related to sinful sexual conduct, including incest and adultery. He lists homosexuality as an abomination. He lists bestiality as a perversion. And then he says this in verse 24. Do not defile yourselves with any of these things. For by all these, the nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you. For the land is defiled. Therefore, I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out its inhabitants. That land, which was promised to the children of Israel, vomited out inhabitants that conducted themselves in these ways. Do you see? And that puts the nation of Israel under a warning. Don't conduct yourselves like them or what's the implication? The land is going to vomit you out also. Do you see? God says, I am Yahweh. If you commit these abominations, you'll be cut off from the covenant, verse 26, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments. You shall not commit any of these abominations, either any of you, your own nation, or any stranger who dwells among you. If you commit these abominations, you'll be cut off from the covenant. And by good and necessary inference, then, if you obey my commands, God says, if you walk in my statutes and my judgments, then you will remain in covenant with God. You'll have, as it were, covenant life. Verse 27, for all these abominations the men of the land have done who were before you, and thus the land is defiled. Lest the land vomit you out also when you defile it as it vomited out the nations that were before you. For whoever commits any of these abominations, the persons who commit them shall be cut off from among their people. They're cut out of covenant. Do you see? Cut out of right standing with God. Therefore, verse 30, you shall keep my ordinance so that you do not commit any of these abominable customs which were committed before you and that you do not defile yourselves by them. I am Yahweh. So herein lies the principle then. Perfect obedience to the law results in right covenant standing or in a right covenant relationship to God. That's the very definition of legalism. That's the very definition, if you will, of a legal concept. What we're talking about here is a legal concept. The one who obeys all that the law requires shall receive the reward that this has been promised through the law. The one who obeys all that the law requires receives the reward that the law promises. A right or justified standing before the God of the covenant. And the fullness of all that that covenant relationship entails. He's treated accordingly. Okay? That's based, again, it's based on a legal concept. A legal concept. We understand that in our own day and in our own court system. Satisfy the demands of the law and you're declared just in the sight of the law. Okay? The one who renders perfect obedience is just. The one who renders perfect obedience under the law is entitled, if you will, to all the rewards and promises of the covenant. He is therefore righteous in the sight of God, and he's treated as such. He enjoys all of the blessings that flow from being in covenant with God, including everlasting life. Now, that principle 
That principle is necessary to our own justification. Can you think of why that is? That principle is necessary to our own justification. How so? Well, it's on the basis of that legal principle that Jesus Christ perfectly and completely fulfilled the demands of the law. It's on the basis of that principle that Jesus Christ secured for us a perfect and complete righteousness. He did not come to abolish the law. What did he come to do? He came to fulfill it. Every jot and tittle. Lord, I'm not worthy to baptize you. I'm not even worthy to loose your sandal, the strap of your sandal. Permit it to be so. Why? To permit to fulfill all righteousness. That principle necessary to our own justification. It's through his righteousness secured for those who put their faith in him. A right standing with God. His perfect and complete righteousness. And it's through him and through his righteousness secured on our behalf that all the blessings of the covenant that flow to him as mediator flow through him as it were to us in union with him. All of that as a part of God's new covenant promises to the people of God. It's that principle of law, that legal concept then, that Paul refers to with his quote in Romans chapter 10, verse 5. For Moses writes about that righteousness which is of the law. Moses writes about that righteousness. He, he writes about that principle, that legal concept. And he says, the man who does those things shall live by them. Who is the only one who has ever done those things? The Lord Jesus Christ. That is the principle, though. That is the principle that in utter futility the Jews pursued. That's the principle that the Jews diligently and zealously pursued. That if I maintain obedience to, the, to God, if I maintain obedience to God under the law, then I will be righteous in God's sight. I'll be entitled. I'll earn it. I'll be entitled to all the blessings of the covenant. And that is the principle of righteousness that the Jews failed to, to attain. Did Jesus Christ earn it? You bet he did. Jesus Christ did not need grace to be, dispo, dis, uh, to be bestowed upon him. Jesus Christ did not need mercy to be bestowed upon him. Jesus Christ perfectly obeyed the law. Now what is manifestly evident in light of the complete and perfect obedience that the law requires is our complete and perfect inability to achieve that standard. We can't do it. This legal principle establishes a condition which is impossible for you and I, for fallen men and women, sons and daughters, to meet. That is why, that is why a complete and perfect penal substitutionary atonement is necessary for us to be forgiven of our sins. It's why the atonement is necessary, and it's why the only acceptable and sufficient atoning work that is uh, uh, capable of providing that forgiveness is the perfect, complete, penal substitutionary atonement of our Lord Jesus Christ himself. That could never be accomplished through the blood of bulls and goats. The only acceptable, the only sufficient sacrifice would be that sacrifice of God's own son, the perfect, spotless lamb of God. Now that legal concept, that legal principle represents only one side of the contrast that Paul is raising in Romans chapter 10. Is this the only way? Here's the question then. Here's the question. 
if you, can, if you think with me about that for a moment, Paul can't quote Moses and then if he intends to reach Jews, unbelieving Jews, can't turn to the, the scriptures of the New Testament, can't turn to his own understanding of that, where must he go? He must go back to Moses, right? Is that the final word of Moses concerning our state? No, it isn't. Is this the only way in which Moses, the lawgiver himself, understood that righteousness could be attained? Was that the only way that Moses thought we could get a righteousness which would justify us before God? No, it isn't. Look at verse Romans chapter 10, verse 6. But, Paul says, in contrast to that, there's law and gospel, and both law and gospel contained within the testimony of the Old Testament scriptures, the righteousness of faith from the Old Testament speaks in this way. Verse 6, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or, verse 7, who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead, but what does it, the righteousness of faith from the Old Testament, what does it say? In other words, what does the gospel proclaim from the Old Testament? Verse 8, the word is near you, that word of faith which we preach, the word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart, that is the word of faith which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Does that seem interesting to you that that comes out of the Old Testament? That's the gospel preached by Paul from the Old Testament scriptures. The Jews would have understood exactly what Paul was saying. To paraphrase Paul, this is the voice of the gospel from the Old Testament. The righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Paul says, this is the word of faith which we preach. And yet the passage that Paul quotes is another text from the mouth of Moses. Moses himself did not only speak of a legal principle to attain righteousness. Moses himself also spoke of that righteousness which may only be attained through faith in God's promised Messiah. Moses preached the gospel. And we see that from two passages that Paul quotes from Deuteronomy. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 9. Deuteronomy chapter 9. And look there at verse 1. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 1. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today and go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than yourself, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the descendants of the Anakim, whom you know, and of whom you heard it said, who can stand before the descendants of Anak? Therefore, understand today that the Lord your God is he who goes over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and bring them down before you, so you shall drive them out and destroy them quickly, as the Lord has said to you. The emancipation generation that came out of Egypt has died in the wilderness because they did not believe. We'll talk about it in a moment. Here's the inheritance generation about to go into the land, and the Lord is going to bring them to the border and take them in. Verse 4. A warning to them. Do not think in your heart after the Lord your God has cast them out before you, saying in your heart, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. 
But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out from before you. In other words, do not think for one moment in your heart. Translated by Paul in Romans chapter 10, verse 6, do not say in your heart. Don't say it. Don't entertain that thought. In other words, do not arrive at this conclusion. You cannot come to this conclusion. Do not think or begin to imagine that this is the reason why you are being brought into the land. Do not think for a minute that this is a reward of your own righteousness because it ain't, okay? Verse 5, it is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out from before you. And so that he may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. What is the implication of that? You are not righteous. That's the implication. You are unrighteous. Verse 6, therefore understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. For you are a stiff-necked people. You are an unrighteous people. Paul refers to the very same reality in Romans chapter 10. Do not say in your heart, don't think for one minute that your righteousness is the ground upon which you will inherit the promised land. Don't think for one minute that because of your own righteousness or because you're a good person that you're going to be entitled to heaven. I'm a pretty good person. My good outweighs my bad. I'm going to heaven. Don't think it for one second. (laughs) That's not the case. You simply cannot believe that your righteousness would be the basis upon which you would be rewarded with heaven. It doesn't work that way. That That is the utter folly of all false religion. If I do this and I do this and I do that and I do the other thing, I've earned a right standing with God. I've earned heaven. I've merited it. I'm good. He's going to let me in. That is utter folly. But as we think about that text and we think about that concept, that's, not, that's also not the entirety of Paul's reference in Romans chapter 10. The bulk of Paul's quote in Romans chapter 10 is drawn from Deuteronomy chapter 30. So turn from Deuteronomy 9 to Deuteronomy 30. Hang in there with me now. It's in Deuteronomy that Moses gives much of his attention to reminding the people that Moses is reminding the people of the blessings that are associated with obedience under the covenant and reminding the people of the curses that are associated with disobedience under the covenant, disobedience to the law. Covenant blessings, covenant curses. And it's this instruction from Moses that is going to be summarized now in the text of Deuteronomy chapter 30. And it's necessary for, understand, for us to understand the context that we start at verse 1. Right, Verse 1. Now it shall come to pass, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind, Among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you, it's an indication things aren't going to bode well for them in the promised land. And verse 2, that you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I command you today, you and your children, with all your heart and with all your soul. Very important. That, verse 3, the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity have compassion on you, gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. It's upon 
Think with me now. Upon turning to the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul. Upon turning to the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul, the Lord says, I'm going to bring you back to myself. Verse 4, if any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you. Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. Going to possess the land that he promised. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. And verse 6, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. That's interesting, and we're going to have to work on this some next week too, but upon returning to the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul, the Lord will gather you back to himself and bring you back into covenant with himself and will provide you all of the covenant blessings. And the Lord, Moses says, the Lord, to do this, the Lord himself is going to circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love him in that way with all your heart and soul so that you may live. What we're talking about is life, aren't we? covenant life, all of the blessings that flow from a right standing with God, all of the blessings that flow from being a justified person in the sight of God, all of those covenant blessings, including everlasting eternal life. Also, verse 7, the Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies and those who hate you, who persecuted you, and you will again obey the voice of the Lord to do all his commandments, which I command you today. Why? How? Because you love him with all of your heart and with all of your soul. You're going to obey him out of love, in other words. And verse 9, the Lord your God will make you abound in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your body, in the increase of your livestock, and in the produce of your land for good. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good as you rejoiced over your fathers. If, verse 10, you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in the book of the law... If, that word and there, not in the original, if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. What are we talking about? We're talking about turning to the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul. And it's turning to the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul that compels us, that bears the fruit of obedience to all of God's statutes and judgments. Do you see? There's a connection there, isn't there? We see that connection explained very clearly in the New Testament. In other words... Obeying the voice of the Lord your God, keeping his commandments, plural, and his statutes, plural, is accomplished. They are accomplished. Obedience is accomplished by turning to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. It's something that you do when God himself circumcises your heart to love him. It's something that you do because... No one does that apart from that gracious work of God, that gracious work that we call regeneration, that gracious work that is that comprises the new birth. It's a covenant blessing when the Lord God circumcises your heart to love him that way, and that circumcised heart bears the fruit of obedience to God out of love. That is a covenant blessing that results in life. Do you see? A covenant blessing. Verse 6, that you may live. 
Here's another way, isn't it? Isn't Moses describing another way in which righteousness, that righteousness which is necessary to life eternal, is attained, not attained through works of the law, attained from God. Verse 11, verse 11, listen. For this commandment, singular, that's interesting. What is he referring to? He's referring to the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. He's referring to the commandment to love him. This commandment which I command you today to love the Lord with all your heart and soul is not too mysterious for you. It's not too mysterious, nor is it far off. And here we see the words of Paul, don't we, in Romans chapter 10. It's not far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word, that singular commandment to love the Lord your God, that word is very near to you, verse 14, in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. The other words we've been rendered incapable of obeying because of our fallen condition, because of our sin. Here's a word, Paul says, that is near us, not too far off, not too mysterious. This is the text of Paul's reference in Romans 10. It's not too transcendent for us. It's not too lofty. It's not too out of reach. It's not too difficult for you, as it were, but rather it is very near to you. It is accessible, if you will. It's available to you within your reach such that it is a commandment that you may obey. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you may do it. The reward for obeying that singular commandment is, verse 6, life. As we've already learned, that life refers to covenant life, right standing with God, declared to be just, righteous in his sight, receiving all of the blessings associated with that covenant, with that position, with that blessing. It's in turning to the Lord and loving the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul that the commandments of God are obeyed. It is the fulfillment of the law. Paul says the same in Galatians, says the same in Romans. We're going to get there. Verse 15, think with me now. See, verse 15, see, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. In that I command you today, I command you to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go in to possess. In his own faithfulness to the covenant, the Lord demonstrates his love in keeping his promises and in blessing his people. And in their faithfulness to the covenant, God's people demonstrate their love for God in keeping his commandments. Covenant faithfulness is expressed in love. And it's a love that bears fruit. It's a love that leads to obedience. But, verse 17, but if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are, not draw, and are drawn away to worship other gods and to serve them... I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. Notice how he says, if your heart turns away, if your heart turns away, you shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose a life that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God that you may obey his voice and that you may cling to him for he is your life and the length of your days that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to our fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them. 
Love for God bears the fruit of obedience to his commands. Paul refers to this concept. I want you to see the connection now. Paul refers to this concept in Romans chapter 10, verse 6, as the righteousness of faith. In other words, to love God is to believe upon him, to trust him for his promises. That faith, which is the fruit of a circumcised heart, is a faith that rests upon God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's a faith that loves the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's a faith that produces out of love obedience to God's commands. And it is in that way that those who are indwelt by a spirit fulfill the righteous requirements of God's law. Right? Not those who walk according to the flesh, that's Romans chapter 8, but those who walk according to the spirit. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 1. Hang in there with me now. Deuteronomy chapter 1. We see this righteousness of faith explained at the very outset of the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 26 Moses is explaining why that emancipation generation coming out of Egypt failed to enter the promised land. For all that God had done in covenant love for them, even bringing them to the border of the land which he had promised to give them, verse 26, nevertheless, you would not go up, but rather you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God and you complained in your tents and said, because the Lord hates us, Think about that, right? In contrast with what God had done for them. In God expressing the terms of the covenant in his own love toward them, they now turn and say, because God hates us. Because God hates us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go up? Our brethren have discouraged our hearts, saying the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. Moreover, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. Then I said to you, verse 29, do not be terrified, terrified, do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you, he will fight for you according to all he did with you, for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his own son. You hear the tenderness in that, the love in that? In all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet for all that, verse 32, you did not believe you didn't love him back. You did not believe the Lord your God. You didn't put your faith and trust in him. Verse 33, who went in the way before you to search out a place for you to pitch your tents, to show you the way you should go in the fire by night and in the cloud by day. Now think with me. Verse 26, they rebelled against the command of God. They did not obey his command. Verse 32, what was the proximate cause of their rebellion? What was the root of their disobedience? They did not believe God. They did not believe him. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 16. For who having heard, rebelled? Was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who what? Did not obey. So we see... Paul surmises that they could not enter in because of unbelief, unbelief. They did not obey, and he rightly connects that disobedience to their unbelief, their lack of love, their lack of a circumcised heart, their lack of love for God, their lack of faith in God. They did not believe. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 36, Caleb enters in because he wholly 
completely follow the Lord. In other words, he loved the Lord his God with all his heart and soul. Sin and disobedience is the bitter fruit of a deeper spiritual problem, isn't it? Sin, disobedience, rebellion against God is ultimately the fruit of unbelief. In contrast, in contrast, it is obedience that provides the evidence of a genuine and lively faith. Faith without works, James says, is dead. That's why Moses may command the inheritance generation in the way that he does. Do not follow the terrible, awful example of your fathers, those fathers of yours that perished in the wilderness, those fathers of yours whom God said he sworn his wrath would not enter his rest, but rather love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Trust him, obey him, cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days that you may dwell, that you may dwell in the land that he promised. You see, the word that Moses preached wasn't merely written on tablets of stone. The words of Deuteronomy do not merely represent that legal principle. But Moses says the command, that command to love is in your heart. He speaks of the righteousness of faith. That righteousness that God has given is a gift of his grace to all and on all who believe. True religion, brothers and sisters, is a religion of the heart. It's a religion of the heart. To turn away your heart from the living God is to turn away in unbelief, bearing the bitter fruit of rebellion against God. Notice, although Moses says that this command to love is near you, it's in your mouth, so to speak, it's in your heart that we may do it, it's simply something that fallen and sinful people cannot do. It requires a cutting. It requires a cutting on the part of God. It requires a circumcision of the heart. It requires a work of God's grace. It requires that we are born again. It requires a new heart. It requires his spirit within us. It requires those blessings associated with the new covenant. It's a work that work of circumcision, that circumcision of the heart, it's a work that is anticipated in the new covenant, secured by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, where God says in the new covenant, I will give them a new heart. I will place my spirit within them and I will cause them to walk in my statutes and to keep my commandments. More on that next week. Brothers and sisters, we've scratched the surface of this text so far. And there's much here. In particular, there's much here with respect to how Paul employs Deuteronomy 30 in particular to make his point. There are many details which we have to get to. But I want you to think on this for a moment, right? As in closing, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ was determined by God in eternity. Before you were, and I were born, in the words of Paul, before we had done anything good or evil, so that for the purpose that God's good, righteous, and sovereign purpose according to election might stand. And to that, through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, God pouring out that love that he determined to set upon us in eternity, God pouring out that love upon us by not withholding his own son, son but rather delivering up his own son for us, so that we, a formerly, blasphemous, insolent, deplorable people might be redeemed. And that redemption 
to terminate upon his glory and not our own for all our awful sin against him. For that to terminate upon his glory and not upon our own must be all of grace. Therefore, it is of faith, the instrumentality of faith, so that through faith all of the blessings of the covenant flow to us, so that it may be according to grace, so that it might be sure to the seed, and so that it might be terminating upon his glory alone and not our own. It's not by works of the law. But at the end of the day, brothers and sisters, it's not a work because God himself entirely has to do that work within us. It begins with his decrees in eternity, and it's worked out in time, time by his kind providence as he calls those sinners whom he has decreed as he calls them to himself effectually by a work of his spirit whereby he circumcises their heart causes them to be born again renews their heart renews their mind gives them a new heart indwells them with his spirit and then god promises god promises as a substantial part of the new covenant blessings that flow to god's people through the covenant that unlike those who disobeyed God in unbelief, those whose corpses lie strewn in the wilderness, unlike those, we may, by his spirit, through faith, with the grace that he's poured out upon us, fulfill the righteous requirements of the law, that we might obey him. It's not apart from obedience. It eventuates in obedience. Paul, an apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ, called, Paul says, the beginning at the outset of our letter, for the obedience of the faith or for obedience to the faith among all nations for the glory of his name. And brothers, that is communicated to us from start to finish, even here in the very first, the book of the law, the Torah from the Old Testament, communicated here by the great lawgiver himself, Moses. Paul's going to prove that further to us uh, next week as we further consider these verses in particular, five, six, and seven, eight together. And we'll see it more closely as we look at these texts from Deuteronomy 30 next week. Pray this will be edifying to you. Brothers and sisters, please keep thinking on this and please keep meditating on this text. Let's keep this in our heart and mind. Think about it during the week. Let's come back ready next week to learn more from God's word. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you for our time together in your word. Uh, thank you, Lord, for this explanation of Paul from the Old Testament. Help us to read our Old Testament scriptures, those things that were written for our own admonition. Help us to read them through the lens of the cross, through the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ, through the promises of the new covenant blessings that have been poured out on us through faith in Jesus Christ. Help us to glorify you in these things. Help us to live for you as you've called us to live for you. Help us not to excuse or to put away or to sweep under the rug those commands to obedience as so many are prone to do in our own day. Help us not to be antinomian but help us to love you with all our heart and with all our soul, knowing that that bears the fruit of following you, trusting you, clinging to you, and obeying you. Thank you, Lord, for teaching us and instructing us today. In particular, thank you for teaching us and instructing us out of, out of your law to point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. May his name be magnified. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. 
My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.